This evening I want to talk about and explore samadhi, or as it's usually translated, concentration, and its uh, role in our practice, how we might be skillful in developing concentration. So first, uh, begin with a poem. This came uh, after a period of concentration practice of my own. It refers to this dedicated practice of just staying with one object, actually in this case for uh, several weeks. This ancient vocation of simplicity. Purity of heart is to will one thing, said Kierkegaard. The breath opens the doors to outer life and to inner light, where we may for a time reside in silence, uh, stillness, and brilliant space and be brought, refined, renewed, revived, revisioned back to the next sounds, steps, and sights of this journey home. So Winnie had remarked that, uh, in a way, concentration is, uh, I think she said, the missing piece or the missing link of our practice, for at least for some of us. And John talked about the importance of sharpening the knife one morning. <laughs> and there, there's a way in which uh, concentration, the steadiness of mind, permits us to go more deeply in a lot of ways, permits us to see more clearly our repetitive thoughts, our reactivity and suffering, especially uh, earlier, saving us from hours and hours of suffering. <laughs> Let's us see uh, Vedana, the feeling tone, it takes a certain amount of stillness just to notice these increasingly subtle aspects of experience. Let's us see impermanence more clearly. It opens us up to uh, a steadiness of our mind and our heart. And yet it's also a very challenging kind of practice. There are all sorts of ways that uh, developing concentration comes up against all sorts of barriers and obstacles and confusions and delusions and um, over-efforting, striving, self-judgment, fear, anger. And that's the beginning of the list. (laughs) So what I want to do, what I want to do tonight is to talk some about the uh, nature of concentration, and then look some at uh, how we practice concentration, and particularly look at some of the challenges of concentration practice, how we can be skillful in our effort, how we, some of what we come up against when we practice. So my intention is to be mostly practical, and I'll be giving a list of tips which I've accumulated over the years on concentration practice. And a lot of them come out of uh, so-called mistakes. To be a teacher, one has to have more mistakes than other people. (laughs) But not just that. (laughs) But hopefully learn from them, right? So we... We accumulate mistake after mistake after mistake and 
we try to save you from making them quite as um, much as we make them. It's one perspective. And then lastly, I want to uh, talk some about the relationship of concentration and insight practice. Because really the aim of concentration is to see clearly, to let us see uh, the three marks of experience that John was exploring, to let us see more and more into the subtle aspects of experience. Uh, concentration was emphasized a lot by the Buddha. It appears on a lot of the lists. It's there in the list of the five spiritual faculties, which, which some of you know. It's on the list of the five powers, the seven factors of awakening. It's one of the uh, factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, where it appears as right concentration. And, and just a word on this, and we'll be looking further at the Noble Eightfold Path, but just a word about uh, language, because, you know, a lot of the translations from the text of the Buddha and the naming of some of the key words were done, like, in the first part of the 20th century in Victorian England. There was a certain cultural context there. So even a word like mindfulness, you know where it comes from? I, I don't know. I lived in England for a year once, but I don't know if I don't. I don't want to try to imi- imitate things, but it's like basically, now, now, John, be mindful and eat your peas. <laughs> it's not an ordinary. It's not an ordinary word in in the English I grew up with. And so it's true also for words like concentration, words like right concentration. It actually can be quite misleading um, because the, the term itself in the original language, sama, is much more related to words like summary. Uh, Pali and Sanskrit are Indo-European languages, which mean they have certain things in common with uh, European languages. And... And so a word like sama actually is related to summary. And so perhaps a a better way to talk about the uh, uh, factors of the Noble Eightfold Path is to talk about mature concentration or developed concentration or realized concentration, something like that. Something also quite important about right concentration, this is something that I actually have only become clearer about in the last years is that all of these factors are in interrelationship with each other. They're not really developed in an isolated way. So concentration is very much related to the other factors. It's related to living ethically. When we live uh, ethically, there's a certain quietness of mind. You know, we're not always strategizing because we told untruths, for example. You know, there's a certain settledness of mind, uh, for the most part, when we live ethically. And there's also this close relation, which we'll explore, between mature effort or skillful effort and between uh, concentration and mindfulness. A really key point that these are all interrelated. And sometimes when, as I mentioned in, in the, I think, the last talk, sometimes when these factors get brought into the mainstream, they're brought out in isolation, and they lose that sense of the relationship, the interrelationship of all the factors. So the word that we have as concentration in the Pali language is samadhi, and from the etymological point of view, it means something like to place together. So it has, again, the word concentration can be very misleading. It lets us believe that to concentrate, we somehow use our will and we focus intensively on the object. And actually, my practice, probably for the first 10 years, was like that. It was like a willful effort to place my mind on the object. And as we'll see, a more skillful way to concentrate has a great deal of relaxation and ease. But for many of us, 
we have that tendency of being the being uh, a concentrator. And so, and there's a lot of conditioning there. So it actually can be more helpful to even to translate concentration as something like a gathering together or in some of the texts is translated as unification of mind and heart. That sense of bringing together. Uh, Richard Shankman, who has a, a book on uh, samadhi, says that samadhi is, the unif- is unifying the mind in steady, undistracted awareness. It's a beautiful quality, right? That sense of steadiness, of um, settledness, lack of distraction, ability to just be with what's there. It's a very, it's a very beautiful quality. I think it's a very natural quality. You know, we have, we have, uh, we all have times when we uh, come into that degree of concentration in our work and uh, different activities. We can see that depth of concentration with, you know, in ordinary activities, in the lives of artists or musicians or athletes. There's a, there's a depth of concentration there, a focus. And I think that's very close to what we have with, uh, in the meditative context. And, and I can remember, you know, experiences myself where I got a taste of that concentration. You know, just, I remember as like a four-year-old just being with activities for hours on end and being able just to stay with that. And just the delight of being in that child's universe. Or I remember an experience I used to have, uh, I grew up in Maryland, not, not so far from the uh, Atlantic Ocean, and used to go there quite a bit. And there was a way that I, I remember as a child lying down with the sun, the sound of the ocean, and going into a kind of reverie that was like a deep absorption state. It was very, something was very precious. And, and when I you know, came back to do more concentration practice, that experience came back to me. And there was something, and I imagine that we've all had something like that or some, some way that we connected in. This is how the Buddha talks about uh, concentration. There comes a time when one's mind becomes inwardly steadied, composed, unified, and concentrated. That concentration is then calm and refined. It has attained to full tranquility and achieved mental unification. It is not maintained by strenuous suppression of the defilements anymore. It actually has its own momentum. And there are many ways that we can concentrate. And I'll continue, even though I think the word concentration is, is, can be misleading, I'm going to keep using it because I've got used to it. <laughs> So there are many forms of concentration practice. The Buddha, in his uh, early practice, worked with the foremost teachers of concentration in India at the time, and he developed forms of what we now call jhana practice, and these deep absorptive states. And in, at the, in the in, for the teachers that he worked with, these were the endpoints of development. This was the endpoint of development to come to this deep, deep concentrative absorption a kind, of, uh, a kind of unity experience, perhaps. But he went on to find concentration valuable, but in need of being connected with insight practice. And that's where, we'll, that's where we'll end up. The concentration is ultimately a means to an end. It's a very important means, though. There are other forms of concentration. Uh, in the, one of the uh, classic texts called the Vasudhi Magha, or the Path of Purification, there are 40 modes of concentration practice, of which uh, mindfulness of breathing is one, metta and the other Brahmavihara, uh, mindfulness of death can be a concentration practice, being with a colored disc called kasinas that you, that you stare at. And you could imagine all sorts of other forms that would be possible sometimes visualization and a lot of other traditions or chanting. You know, I have a friend whose practice is to chant virtually all the day. It's a kind of concentration practice. And and you can see how metta would be concentration as well.
generally speaking, there are three kinds of concentration. You know, in the classical text, there's one that's more related to our being with changing objects, like in our insight practice, which is called kanaka samadhi, which is sometimes called momentary samadhi, a being with changing objects but having that steadiness of mind. As the concentration deepens, there's a state which isn't there in the, in the Buddhist teachings, but it's there in the uh, text called the Vasudhimaga, which is called access concentration, where the mind is very, very, very steady, almost as if it's on a groove. There's a groove, and some of you, I'm sure, have experienced this, where the mind is just in this groove, and it's effortless, and one's just with the object continually. And you might experience that for a short time, a longer time. And then there are the, the deeper absorptive states called jhanas, which are uh, states of deep, deep um, absorption and o- almost like a kind of unity with the object where aspects of ordinary experience are not, are not present in the same way. And it can be, can be very uh, much um, purifying of consciousness at times. So we need this concentration in order to penetrate habitual mind. I think we know that, right? We've all been working with uh, habitual mind. Habitual mind may be there even though it's the sixth week. Has anyone found your habitual mind still there? (laughs) Despite your script. Anyone have a script for the retreat in which habitual repetitive mind was supposed to be Finished by this point in the retreat? So we'll come back to scripts a little, little bit later. <laughs> noticing scripts is very, very important in our practice. Notice, noticing expectations and scripts. But we need some ability to um, go beyond the repetitive thoughts. And that's what we've been working on for all these weeks. You know, to be with the stories, notice them and not be so caught up and then to go to the more subtle aspects of experience that I mentioned earlier, the three marks of existence, to see the subtleties of thought and reactivity and feeling tone and uh, perception and so forth. When concentration is strong, the hindrances are no longer present. And we can experience times of peace and calm, steadiness, which can be uh, very, you know, very, very um, inspiring at times, can be very powerful. You know, I know my, the first Vipassana retreat I did, there was certain times when I touched that calm and it just was, my gosh, this is possible, right? This is possible in one's life. And even, and of course, that can set up clinging. (laughs) Should should I not say can set up clinging? (laughs) It it often sets up clinging and attachment and then planning how the next sitting will duplicate that nice state, right? And and so, and and this this is a long training, right? We, We keep on, we keep on getting attached to those tastes, but it also can be inspiring. We can touch something. This is a poem from uh, the Persian poet Hafiz um, called In a Treehouse. It's from this poem. And this is really about the sense of uh, the value of some of these experiences where we touch something deeper and really the importance of of just the, the confidence that can give for one's practice. Light will someday split you open, even if your life is now a cage. For a divine seed, the crown of destiny is hidden and sown on an ancient fertile plain you hold the title to. Love will surely bust you wide open into an unfettered, blooming new galaxy, even if your mind is now a spoiled mule. A life-giving radiance will come. Oh, look again within yourself, for I know that you were once the elegant host to all the marvels in creation.
The Buddha said that concentration is actually necessary for liberation. He said without the peace of concentration, without attaining to calm, without one-pointedness, that one should enter and abide in mind emancipation and insight emancipation, that cannot be. Practitioners develop concentration. A practitioner who is concentrated develops, understands things as they really are. So how to practice? So the rest of the talk will be primarily practical. How to do it, what are some of the challenges, and how do we connect concentration with our insight practice? So we, you know, most of us are doing uh, two forms which sometimes take the shape of concentration practice. If we have mindfulness of breathing or of uh, some other primary object, we simply keep coming back. We let the breath be the primary object, let's say, or the focus, and we keep coming back to the breath. We see what gets in the way of it. If we were doing dedicated concentration practice, as uh, people sometimes do, we would actually stay with one object the whole day. And we might be with the breath when we were walking, when we were eating, in our rooms, and we would just stay with that object. And we would keep coming back, keep coming back. And sometimes that can be valuable for a period of time to work with developing concentration like that. But even, so, even if we're not working like that, we're developing concentration by continually, uh, continually returning. If we do that dedicated concentration practice where we're just with one object, and it could be metta as well, it could be working with the metta phrases, then when we are coming back to the breath, we and we, we stay with the breath, when there are thoughts or emotions or body sensations that come, we simply uh, come back. We don't attend to them in the same way when we're doing dedicated concentration practice. If they are generally of moderate or less strength, when something is quite strong and comes up for quite a while, we, we stay with the, uh, we, we move to that, we really move to mindfulness practice. And so similarly with with uh, metta, we would just stay with metta and we may have thoughts and emotions. We don't use mindfulness in the same way when we're doing that dedicated practice with metta or with the breath or a primary object. We just keep coming back unless something becomes quite strong and lasts for a while, in which case we work with mindfulness practice. So we only stay with one object and we just try to stay with it in this very matter-of-fact way. And um, another short poem um, I talk with my mom, uh, Bernice, who happens to be a few feet away. <laughs> and we talk about meditation some. And her favorite meditation practice is concentration practice, right? And so we talk about that. And she says, you know, um, just teach me concentration practice. And, and then we, um, she also says, she's a musician. And she says, music is like concentration practice. And says, music is actually my concentration practice. She says, in giving a concert, if there's a sense of self or of how one's doing, it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> you have to let yourself be taken over by the music. And there's that way that in concentration practice, we let ourselves be taken over by the object. You know? And there can be a quality of actually of love and care and devotion with the object, sort of the preciousness of the breath. And that's where, again, we want to watch out for concentration practice as this willful, I will be with the object, you know, in this kind of exertion, because it actually, again, can be something relaxed, easeful, and actually something of the heart when we concentrate. And that's hard for a lot of us, right? That's hard, so I'll get to that in a moment. And so we, we work particularly to connect with the object. And some of the teachings, there are factors which help with concentration. One of them is really connecting well with the object. 
Another is being able to sustain the attention on the object and eventually become, become one-pointed. There's also a way, interestingly, in which that quality of concentration can have an aspect, that aspect of ease, but also of happiness. And there's a, one of the teachings uh, of the Buddha is a, uh, is a teaching of what's called transcendental dependent origination. And what, what's important there is that there are actually teachings there about how qualities like delight and joy and happiness lead directly to concentration. That there's a close link between those qualities of the heart and the steadiness of mind. And so that one can actually cultivate happiness, kindness, the kind heart, metta, and these will all contribute to the steadiness of mind. So what are the ch- some of the challenges of concentration practice? I want to name some of them and then talk about how to work with some of them. One of the challenges is that often when we practice concentration, sometimes things are more intense and we go through a kind of purification process. Things come up, sometimes in concentration practice more than in mindfulness practice. So I'll talk about that. We can get very attached to concentrated states. I'll talk some about that. There can be a lot of issues related to attachment. And then there there are issues about what is skillful effort. There can be many ways that we overexert. There's over-efforting, there's striving, we want to get somewhere, and so forth. And these are actually not just concerns about concentration, but also concerns about our practice in general. So part of my motivation tonight was not uh, entirely to focus on concentration, but to bring out some sense of what is skillful effort or what is skillful way that we um, work with bringing energy to practice. In the text, there is a lot of mention of purification. And it's something that we see, I, I teach the meta retreat a lot. And, and uh, you know, typically either one or two retreats a year. And I've been doing that for about, I don't know, 13 or 14 years. And uh, in those retreats, things seem to be more volatile than mindfulness retreats. There's more stuff that's up. People, maybe it's because in the metta we try to bring the kind heart and as, as it were, that which is not kind surfaces. You know? And people have dreams. You know, people come in in the morning to the room and say, I was an axe murderer last night. Is this my true nature? <laughs> and we say, no, very normal. <laughs> Don't worry. I was an axe murderer myself just two weeks ago. <laughs> In my dreams. <laughs> this is the Buddha. Purification of ethics and virtue is for the sake of reaching purification of mind. And that's identified with concentration. Purification of concentration, of mind, is for the sake of reaching purification of wisdom. So we have that link between the different, different factors. So we work with the hindrances, they come up. We have to work with the um, desire, the wanting. We have to work with the not wanting, the aversion, the irritation, wherever that is we see that, we keep on working with that, we work through that, we work with uh, what comes up in the body. Sometimes with concentration practice, we, as well as mindfulness practice, we experience the, the various knots of the body. We have all sorts of things happen at the level of the body that is some kind of inner balancing that seems to occur. You know, I know from my own experience, I had once experience of three days of um, 
walking and the ground moved with every step. And I went into Joseph Goldstein, who was my main teacher at that time, and he, and, you know, I could have made something of it, say, you know, am I in my right mind? <laughs> but he said, oh yeah, that happened to me once. And I just went on and went away. You know, but things, things like that, the body goes through a kind of balancing. Many of you may have had, I know sometimes when I was practicing, my left shoulder would feel 10 feet higher than my right shoulder. Anyone know the kind of bodily image? It's strange, isn't it? People imagine a lot of you know that. So things happen. We, of course, we open to what we haven't faced in our experience, where things from the past come, things uh, that are um, from our unconscious, where there's material that we haven't looked at. You know, we may have anger surface or um, sadness. It could be could be joy. Could be could be material that that's traumatic in nature. It surfaces that that which uh, sometimes that quiet brings out these these other aspects of ourselves, and that's normal, you know. It can bring out a deep sense of intention, you know. The the purification isn't just about being with what's hard; it's also about bringing out uh, beautiful qualities, you know. Like for me, retreats have almost always really touched my deeper intentions and aspirations, and sort of. Uh, in a way, purified them, you know, and, and made them clearer to me, you know, and, and, and um, very, very helpful in that way. So how do we work with some of these challenging states? And, you know, many or most of us have been doing that and, and working in your own way with them and bringing the reports of difficult states to us as teachers. And it's a huge part of our practice. It's working with challenging states, challenging mind states. Judgmental mind, as, as Oren mentioned, is a huge factor for so many of us. You know? And it's one of the glories of our practice that we get to work with challenging states with support for a sustained period. I know for myself, I've had you know, weeks of judgmental mind retreat. I had one retreat where I was angry for 18 hours a day for 10 days. I may seem kind of like a gentle person. <laughs> it happened. You know. you know, other times when I was with fear for almost 10 days straight. You know. Luckily, a lot of that was somewhat workable. And it's really, I, just wanna, I wanna come back to that because I'm not suggesting that we can somehow work with things where it's just too much. You know, there's, a, there's an adult learning theory which says there are three zones. There's the comfort zone, there's the discomfort zone, and there's the overwhelm or panic zone. Guess where we learn the most? You got it. <laughs> we don't put that in our promotional material. <laughs> Come, spend time in the discomfort zone and learn. <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? That when we that a tremendous amount of learning comes when the when it's more or less workable, and so part of the way to work with challenging states is to have a sense of what, of when it's workable and when it's not. It's actually a, a difficult part of the, of practice. When am I really lost in something, and when am I being mindful? You know, one thing to look at is is the level of activation such that I'm really triggered. And if that's the case, we want to generally pull back in some way. We can use some of what Heather talked about. We can, at that point, open our eyes, look at around the hall, feel the body, pull out of that. Uh, really, it's really the overwhelmed state. We don't learn there. Really crucial for difficult, uh, difficult experiences. You know, if it's in the workable range, we can use the RAIN method. That was discussed earlier. We can, we can name it. We can name what's happening. We can explore what's it like in the body. What are the storylines? To become really familiar with those manifestations. When we're, when we're with difficult experiences, really crucial to keep a, keep a kind of balance of our being. And, and I find doing a fair amount of metta or compassion or being with the heart really, really crucial if we have a significant amount of difficult material. 
there's a lot of anger or, or fear, really to be with the metta. You know, as, as we explored uh, that, you know, as, as Winnie uh, mentioned, you know, the metta is a, an antidote to fear. It's really to work with, to work with fear. And concentration, interestingly, when it's strong, it sometimes can actually suppress states where there is overwhelm. It, it can have that power at times. It can shift the energy. It's not that that's where we find the freedom, but we some, sometimes that's skillful. You know. I once had the experience where I was uh, camping at Taramandala, and they gave me a place. And they told me a bear had been there a week before. And it was a really nice place. And I, and I, I said, fine, I'll be there. After the day's practice, 9.30 or 10, I, I lay down to sleep. And I thought about the bear. <laughs> and they told me they had taken it 50 miles away. But I wasn't so sure. <laughs> and so I sat there. I think I probably sat up and I said after a while, after being with these thoughts, you know, and you know how it is, interpreting, like, like in Mary Grace's talk, noticing how interpretations come very quickly from little twigs snapping. Right? And you've all, I imagine, or many of us have, have experienced that, you know, in various ways. And so, at a certain point, I said, it's time for metta. <laughs> and I sat there, and this is what I did. I, I uh, did metta practice for three hours straight. Sometimes for the bear, sometimes for myself, for all, <laughs> all beings, and so forth. And after three hours, something had happened. And, the, you know, and actually, I went to sleep, I slept soundly, and, and I slept there for the next week, and I didn't think about the bear at all. It's interesting, right? And so metta can have uh, a lot of power at times. Again, that was, that was not mindfully examining my fear, which it was like, okay, I think I'll uh, try to... Uh, this is what's called an antidote. <laughs> <laughs> or it's switching away. So, okay. So somewhat th- those are some ways of working with uh, the challenging states. And in this very uh, amazing and awesome purification process, we also... Uh, another challenge of concentration practice is that we get attached to concentrated states. Need I say more? <laughs> Maybe we're only here because of that attachment. <laughs> to some, as well as other things. I mean, aspiration, want wisdom, and so forth. But there, there often is that attachment. And it's, uh, you know, I certainly know that very, very well. You know, and that, you know, that trying to make what happened in that sitting happen again. And the attachment occurs in all sorts of ways. We can, and there's a very, there is a very interesting uh, way that we use concentration in that attached way, which is called spiritual bypassing. Do you know that term? It was developed by a psychologist, John Wellwood. And it's, um, we can use concentration uh, to avoid having certain material come up. Uh, you know, a friend of mine, Robert Masters, who wrote a whole book on spiritual bypassing, he said that spiritual bypassing is the use of spiritual practices or beliefs to avoid dealing with painful feelings, unresolved wounds, and developmental needs. I think we could also bypass looking at some of our positive experiences as well. Maybe I'll come back to that. I have another friend named Mariana Kaplan who um, wrote a a short story about spiritual bypassing that she had encountered while dating. (laughs) This was a short story called Zen Boyfriends. (laughs) I'll, I'll read what she said and then a little excerpt from the story. At a certain stage in my own spiritual development, I began to attract a new breed of men that over time I came to call Zen boyfriends. (laughs) 
I use the term Zen loosely here because a man doesn't have to be a Zen Buddhist to fall into this category. He could be a Tibetan Buddhist, a Sufi, or even a practitioner of some obscure form of yoga. <laughs> the more rigid the tradition, the better for this type. What defines a Zen boyfriend is the manner in which he skillfully uses spiritual ideals and practices an excuse for his terror of and refusal to be in any type of real relationship. <laughs> okay. So an excerpt from this. Um, so this is about her relationship with a man named Stefan who went to India and became Jivan. <laughs> this is a short dialogue with Jivan. I'm sorry if this is touching home and so on. <laughs> so let's see if I can read this. Okay. Um, Jivan, if we are going to hang out together, I need to feel like you're really here with me and not always so detached. I opened the floor. Jivan, but who is the you who wants to hang out with me? <laughs> So you see, this, this actually relates in some way to our morning question, right? And, and that sense of identity and uh, sort of uh, prematurely claiming transcendence, right? Okay, who is the you who wants to hang out with me? I am the me, says Mariana. <laughs> and you are the you. <laughs> Jivan, there is no difference. So we can never really be a part of together. It's all the same. Mariana, you're full of it. <laughs> Jivan, but who do you think is the me that is full of it? <laughs> Mariana, I think it is you. <laughs> Jivan, who's getting angry? <laughs> Mariana, I'm getting angry. <laughs> Look into my eyes, what do you see? You. Look more deeply. Now what do you see? <coughs> I see a lonely man who thinks he's enlightened. <laughs> mm. Mm. So we want to look at that. You know, we want to see, and we all do this. You know, I certainly know I got, in being attached to concentration, you know, just really finding, some of it's almost unconscious. We just go there. Because if we have the facility sometimes, and, but we can also sometimes know that we're using concentration maybe to avoid something. And we can look into that. And we can watch that attachment. Really uh, quite pervasive. We can get attached in various ways. And in all spiritual traditions, there are stories of getting attached to particularly deep and unusual states of concentration. And the Buddha was very clear that there are dangers and that the aim of concentration is to use it for the purposes of insight and freedom. So how to, how to use, how to be skillful in our effort? How to work with different challenges? And I'm going to give a sense, these are the tips that I think I've accumulated and, and written down over time. When one's working on concentration, generally uh, moderation in eating and sleeping are important. And I found that actually in my early practice, I used to like to really practice, uh, stay up late and so forth and sort of push it a little bit. And with concentration practice, it's actually good to have a balanced, uh, really a balanced uh, approach really to get sort of an adequate amount of sleep, to have moderation in eating and so forth. Another way to stay with the um, development of concentration is just to stay with, stay with it, despite the, the ups and downs. That, uh, and you can give yourself that pep talk or that intention at the beginning of a sitting. Let me just stay with it. And many of us know that sometimes we are very distracted. Concentration is mysterious. Sometimes we're very distracted. We stay with it, and 15 minutes later, we're settled. 
Do you know that? I'm sure we know that we all know that. Or that we actually can be mindful of the tiredness and the cloud of um, the cloud of tiredness and stay with it. And 15 minutes later, something opens up and there's not so much. So really staying with it, giving oneself that, that uh, intention, but having a quality of relaxation, really, really crucial. You know? In the concentration retreat here at Spirit Rock, the teaching is very much about relaxed attention. Very, very crucial. So we keep coming back, we keep starting, we work with repetitive thoughts in the ways that we know. Some, something that's been also very helpful for me is sometimes a certain amount of firmness is necessary with repetitive thoughts where we may um, actually, uh, I think we use this metaphor, but really almost like treat the mind like a little puppy and say, no, not now. I think John, John had something like that, I believe. And that it actually can be important at a certain time when, when the mind is just going over the same terrain over and over again, just to say, not now. Sometimes that helps, sometimes that, that doesn't. I know in my own concentration practice, sometimes I had to develop a certain fierceness with that mind. And again, we have to be skillful here because for some people that would not be so skillful. But for me, to actually, I actually, sometimes I would have an image of a tiger and I would summon tiger energy, <clears throat> like that. And uh, it was helpful sometimes for just, you know, uh, not just being in the meandering so much. It can be very, very helpful. To say to oneself, now is the time I want to go more deeply. You know, just to say, not now, in terms of repetitive thoughts. I mentioned how the qualities of gladness, of kindness, of happiness can be a proximate cause of concentration. And so gladdening, <coughs> gladdening the mind can be very helpful. If we're, concent- if we're aiming at concentration, we feel a little dry, we can bring some of that in. We can bring some of that gladdening in, some of that sense of uh, ease and happiness, uh, peace and so forth, metta. This is from uh, a Russian Orthodox uh, pilgrim named Theophane from the 19th century. In order to keep the mind on one thing by the use of a short prayer, it is necessary to preserve attention and so lead it into the heart. When attention descends into the heart, it attracts all the powers of the soul and body into one point there. And so it comes about that, whereas in the initial stages, the attention is kept in the heart by the effort of will, in due course, this attention by its own vigor gives birth birth to warmth in the heart. This warmth then holds the attention without special effort. From this, the two go on to supporting one another and must remain inseparable because dispersion of attention cools the warmth and diminishing warmth weakens attention. Another helpful tool for developing more concentration is to have a kind of beginner's mind and just be there and say, whatever happens, happens. To watch out for those scripts, to watch out for that sense, this should happen now. Here's where I'll get this sitting. And, and one can work at the beginning with that sense of beginner's mind. One way that's been very helpful for me is to invoke a sense of mystery at the beginning of a session, to invite that way to hold the practice. It can bring that sense of ease. If one wants to develop concentration, particularly with a kind of dedicated practice, <clears throat> sometimes longer sittings can make a difference. You know, sometimes to sit for an hour and a half or two hours at a time. And one of, the, one, of the, one of the perks of concentration practice, if I can put it that way, is that if you're being with the breath, it actually isn't helpful to have a lot of strong body sensations because it distracts one from the breath. So it's fine to sit for 45 minutes, stand up for five minutes, sit back down, 
move to a chair, but there's something that when we stay more or less in the same space over time, concentration can deepen. I use that all the time. I, I like to sit for longer periods. And again, we want to be careful if there's that quality of straining or striving, you know, which I'll come to just in a moment. In fact, right now. <laughs> so this is a big one. Striving, wanting to get somewhere, achievement, goal orientation in our practice. And, and it actually is both important and really tricky to have intentions and goals. And, and yet it can, it can very much uh, trip us up. Many of us have issues around control. You know, this is, I'll, I'll read something from <clears throat> a period of about three weeks of concentration practice uh, a number of years ago. This is what I wrote. This is my journal. Never read this before <laughs> in public. <laughs> I needed to learn more about the aspect of ease and what Jack Kornfield calls dwelling in concentration. This was the most important learning. Such ease and dwelling also very importantly is related to giving up control and doing, a big one for me for a long time. While I have been learning aspects of this in meditation since the beginning, there is still so much more to learn. It was to learn more and and explore more how life is doing me how the process is taking me on a course of learning. Invariably, when I relaxed expectations and a sense of doing, things deepened. Interesting. Invariably, when I relaxed expectations and a sense of doing, things deepened. This happened many times. I had to learn this more, to surrender, to let go. It has implications for my larger life and for how I approach life and death. It is to rest in something larger. It is to trust in what is coming through me. It is to be aware of the old conditioned tendencies to find my identity as a responsible, competent, thorough doer. And so we look with, we look at that and it is, this is deep conditioning, isn't it? It's deep conditioning, you know, and there's, there is a meditative doer. There is a meditative self that we take on and we want to look at that. We want to see where there's striving. We want to look at that. We want to look at that, you know, and we can work with it in a lot of ways. We can look at our motivation, really look honestly at the motivation. It's not easy. We can catch ourselves straining physically, sometimes in the over-efforting, we know it in our bodies. We know it in our minds, maybe by judgment, you know, and it's a long process. And I have to say, um, to come, for me, to come to more mature approach to concentration, um, it's taken a lot of time. And there's actually a fair amount of suffering from not getting what I wanted in practice and just staying with it. And we have to be prepared to do that. It's, this is not easy. This, this is very deep conditioning related to cultural conditioning for many of us for who we think we are, doers, and so forth. So we come towards that more receptive effort for many of us, where we, where we, where we practice with more ease, more softening, more relaxed attention. We move eventually towards a kind of <coughs> effortless effort where we're not trying so hard. And we find this in the masters of all disciplines. You look to, look to master musicians, master artists, master athletes. There's a high level of effort, but they're not straining. And that's where we, that's where we go. We go something to like that state that John talked about, atamayata, translated sometimes as a non-doing that's full of presence and awareness. And we come then when 
you know, at different times, concentration is well developed, we bring it to our insight practice. This is really the aim of our practice. It's to use that ability to see beneath the surface for the purposes of freedom, for the purposes of seeing more clearly, not to have concentration as an end. You know, we see more and more the three characteristics. We see our constructions of self. We see our patterns of reactivity. We see these over and over again. I sometimes think of practice as a method of exhaustion. (laughs) We have to see something over and over again. Have you seen that? You see it over and over again to a point where you say, not again. (laughs) It's actually sometimes when there's exhaustion that learning is ready to occur. The Buddha taught concentration and insight together. They were part of a, of a coherent program, a, of a unified teaching. He said, one who has gained calm in, in oneself, but not the higher wisdom of insight into things, should make an effort to establish the one and attain the other. One who has uh, gained the higher wisdom, but not calm, should make an effort to establish the one and attain the other. One who has gained neither (laughs) should put forth intense desire, effort, exertion, impulse, unobstruction, mindfulness, and attention for the attainment of concentration and wisdom. They require each other, really. Achan Shah, the great Thai teacher, said, meditation is like a single stick of wood. Vipassana is one end of the stick and concentration is the other. If we pick it up, does only one end come up or both? Insight has to develop out of peace and tranquility. The entire process happens naturally on its own accord. And there was an insistence that concentration is necessary for freedom. That one could develop wisdom without mature concentration, this is impossible. So it's a crucial practice, and yet it's so challenging. In many ways, it comes up against a lot of our conditioning. And yet, there are ways to work with all of of those challenges, and to develop in concentration, and to come to use it as a great resource for calm, to be an antidote, to use as skillful means at times, and ultimately to see more clearly what's there. So I'll I'll close with (coughs) a reading from the Buddha and then I'll read that poem again. This spiritual life, the Buddha says, does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit or the attainment of moral discipline for its benefit or the attainment of concentration for its benefit or knowledge and vision for its benefit, but it is this unshakable liberation of mind and heart that is the goal of the spiritual life, its heartwood and its end. This ancient vocation of simplicity, purity of heart is to will one thing, said Kierkegaard. The breath opens the doors to outer life and to inner light, where we may for a time reside in silent stillness and brilliant space, and to be brought, refined, renewed, revived, revisioned, back to the next sounds, steps, and sights of this journey home. Thank you very much for your kind and very concentrated attention. (laughs) Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.